Welcome in. You're listening to Ally Radio. I'm Noah Glick, executive editor with the Sierra Nevada Ally. With just days left in the Nevada legislative session, lawmakers are scrambling to get their final bills over the finish line and to Governor Lombardo's desk. To break down the latest from Carson City, I'm here with KNPR's Paul Boger. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to do it, Noah. Well, it seems like we've got an education budget agreed to. Mm-hmm. What's the latest? Uh, what did what did we hear this week? So yeah, we we got big news late, late, late Wednesday night that Governor Lombardo had decided he would in fact sign the education budget, which is SB five hundred three. If anybody's counting, uh, and, and essentially that bill is that very large piece of legislation that's going to fund everything in K twelve education from teacher pay to what the school district is going to get over the next two years from the state. So that's about $11.2 billion over the next biennium. I think about $5.4 billion for the FY24 year, about $5.2 billion for FY25. Yeah, yeah. So that that happened. And, and that, you know, that, that, big was one, that bill was one of those big sticking points of lawmakers because it didn't have any additional money for education scholarships as the school vouchers. However, it had a whole lot more money for public education. So I guess the governor and his team, along with lawmakers, came to negotiations that say that bill would be signed. However, <laughs> we now have this other situation where the governor has now vetoed late, late, late last night, Thursday night, that he has vetoed the state appropriations bill. So that's the one that actually funds state agencies and what they do for the next two years. So now we are in the middle of a budget battle between the governor and lawmakers. And with four days to go, this could really turn out anyway. Yeah. And it, I think it's an important distinction here, Paul, because a lot of the discussion has been around the education budget and the threats of a veto from Governor Lombardo because of the education budget. But a lot of folks are worried about hey, I'm a state worker. Am I going to get paid as of July 1? If that state appropriations bill is not agreed upon, are we looking at a government shutdown as of July 1? Or what does that mean? So that's that's the big question, right? Lawmakers have until June 30th to get all of this, all these negotiations completed, right? So if we don't have that that July 1 uh, money in place, it then the, the big question is, okay, so what doesn't work anymore? Uh, you know, schools, with that big appropriations bill may work. However, the Department of Education may not. Uh, so that's that's where we're at. Now, the state lawmakers and the governor did pay, pass and sign the, the state worker pay bill. Now, that's the, the bill that will actually make sure all the state workers are paid. But if you work for an agency that's been affected by a shutdown and you have people who aren't at work to do payroll, are those are you still going to get a paycheck? Now that's that's a question. I don't know if we're going to get to a government shutdown because if if we're just down one budget bill, Democrats have said they're going to just repass the same budget. So they've passed education though. Yeah. So education is passed, and I know there are five budget bills. Yes. How, where are we on all of those right now? Three have been signed into law: education, feds, and state pay. Then you've got the authorization, the appropriations bill, and then you have the CIP. That actually is being held up in the in the Senate right now. Lawmakers need at least one vote from a Republican because that requires two thirds majority to passage 
because it has a new tax element to it, to go into law. Now, CIP, just for clarification, that's capital investment? Capital improvement project. Capital so improvement project. That's, that's usually the money that uh, allows the state to repair buildings and build new ones and issue bonds to pay for those things. You know, that's that's where that you know more investment side of things come from. It is also something that the state could live without. So if a CIP bill isn't passed this year, it's not the end of the world. We're not going to see a government shutdown. But you might see things get a little bit more run down over the next two years if you don't see that CIP. And then I want to ask, though, too, about there was a couple of other big headline making bills here, the film tax credits, the A's stadium deal. You know, with this passage of the education bill, what appears to be some negotiation between Lombardo and Democratic lawmakers, where do those bills stand? Do you have any sense of, you know, was that part of the the calculus here when they were negotiating? Well, that's uh, boy. <laughs> so so we're at this point now where, uh, you know, what I've been told from sources is that about a week or so ago, Democrats went to the governor's office and said, hey, here are our priorities and handed the governor's chief of staff a list of bills that they wanted signed. In exchange, the governor would get some movement on his priorities. You know, we did see those school violence bills go through, including one of the governor's. It wasn't everything he wanted, but, got, you know, the Democrats also gave a lot in that bill. Another one is, you know, school choice. There is a bill out there that is a school choice voucher program vehicle in order to, you know, appropriate money uh, accordingly. Whether that moves at this point is absolutely up for debate because now Democrats are probably going to do exactly what they said in their press conference last week, which was, now that the governor has vetoed the budget, they're just going to concentrate on getting out of here, passing that budget, and possibly killing those two big bills, those the, that, that A's stadium and that film tax credits. You know, those are big, big asks. The A's want $380 million. We only got that bill last Friday, and we're only just, we only just now had a hearing on it last Monday. So we're just now really getting the details, and lawmakers are really just now seeing what's in there. And that's why you saw folks like, you know, Mark Wahlberg and Jeremy Renner in the building in the last couple of weeks trying to get those tax credits passed. At this point, though, that bill is likely going to see a lot of changes. Um, you know, it's that the bill wants two uh, studio sites in Las Vegas. Lawmakers talking about maybe just doing one, keeping that one in Summerlin, the Sony Picture Studio, not doing the one for Bircher Group and UNLV. Uh, and then they got the A Stadium, $300 million in public financing, 180 from the state, the rest from Clark County and issued by bonds. The question is, do we need, do taxpayers want to fund another public stadium? Do they want to fund the A's moving to Nevada? And if you just ask around the general consensus of the building in Carson, it's, uh, do we have to? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really one of those things where who's pushing it? Now, there's a lot of talk in the room that it, the governor's the one who really wants the A's. So if it is the governor who really wants the A's to move to Las Vegas, he's probably going to have to think real fast about how he's going to work with Democrats. However, that doesn't seem to be the case here because he has vetoed a few pieces of legislation that have come as a big surprise to folks. Yeah, I want to talk about vetoes because, you know, Governor Lombardo did make some headlines a few weeks back when he vetoed those the, the trio of uh, gun control le related legislation. But he's also now vetoed uh, a mental health bill uh, as well as some other things. Can you just give us an update on where uh, Lombardo's vetoes stand at the moment? 
So that's an interesting question. You mentioned the gun bills, which were his first vetoes of the session, and, and that was widely expected. And we have seen him veto a few bills that we expected. You know, there was a fake electors bill uh, that would allow the, the state to prosecute anyone who was accused or involved in creating a, a fake elector scheme like we saw in the 2020 election. You know, that's been vetoed. That's not a surprise there. A couple other election bills, uh, you know, we, he, 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 he vetoed another that talked about, you know, proof of residency and how to show that you're a resident when you're trying to register to vote that didn't include a voter ID section. So he vetoed that. But we also saw him veto things like appropriations for summer school and mental health services, things that he saw, he's talked about as being priorities of his own and how that passed in a bipartisan manner being vetoed. I think it's important to note, especially the mental health bill passed unanimously, I believe with one exception, one person was excused, uh, I believe in the Senate. But aside from that, we're talking about unanimous support. And so that seems like a surprise veto there, right? It, it is. It is. It is surprising. Um, you know, I think we're just at that point of session where, you know, the governor is going to is trying to find a way to make sure that lawmakers know that he's going to get, he's going to get what he wants. You know, you're see, watching both sides dig in. And the other thing is, if lawmakers want to bring these bills back, I mean, you mentioned the mental health. Well, that, that passed unanimously. They could easily override that veto. So in the next few days, I think that's what you're going to see a lot is bills going to the governor's office being vetoed and then lawmakers either deciding to override or to continue on their way. But the thing is, if they don't get this budget signed and dealt with by June 5th, which is Monday, well, guess what? We're back to special session talk. And, you know, that's that's a whole nother can of worms that we could deal with. Yeah. So let's hope that lawmakers can get things wrapped up here in the next few days. We get our budgets taken care of and make sure that all of our state workers are are paid. Um, I just want to ask one more question before I forget, Paul, just going back to education. There's been a push by teachers, uh, the, the time for 20. So a 20 percent increase in teacher pay, uh, 20 to one student to teacher ratio mm-hmm. and 20 uh, percent or twenty dollar an hour minimum wage for all school staff. Has that gone anywhere? No, it didn't go anywhere because it was a big ask by that's by that, the state teachers that's, union. That was that was an additional ask on top of the right. And, and, okay, we'll, we'll talk about it for just a minute because because it is important. Um, so they wanted tw- a twenty percent teacher pay raise, twenty dollar minimum wage for anybody else working in the school, and a, a pretty much an expansion of schools. So moving class sizes down to twenty te- twenty students per teacher. You know. Just the teacher pay element alone would have cost an additional five hundred million dollars. So you know that that's that's what that portion was. Lawmakers compromised. They gave they gave teachers about two hundred fifty million dollars in new uh, money for salaries. You know that's not enough to get Nevada teachers to parity to the national average, which is what you know the state teachers union wanted. But to be fair, though, this comes also down to the politics of the teachers unions of Nevada. You know, there are two. There's CCEA, which represents Clark County uh, teachers. And then there's the state teachers union, which which pretty much covers Washoe County and everybody else. The two don't get along and have always kind of had a battle between themselves and lawmakers, mostly being from Clark County, tend to listen to CCEA a little bit more. NSEA also has a problem with personalities. Their lobbyists tend to be a little bit more uh, loud. And, and you know, that 
somewhat detracts from their message occasionally. All that being said, though, teachers are going to get a little bit more out of this budget. Is it enough to be the panacea that fixes public education in the state of Nevada? Absolutely not. It's not enough money. And, and, you know, there's way more systemic problems with education in this state than just the cash flow issues. But the cash flow issues could help a lot. And I think, you know, if you if you break it down and if the money actually makes it to the teachers, to the administration, that's been an issue for years, then, you know, it, it'll help. It's important to note, too. I mean, as as you see these requests, too, you know, you have to keep in mind all the trade offs, right? If, if, if teachers were to get the, the full 500 million in funding that they wanted for salaries, well, that 250 million extra has to come out of somewhere else, right? Right. And that's actually a big point. They wanted that to come out of the rainy day fund. So they wanted the state to dip into its reserves and actually fund that education, which I guess the state could have done. You know, it has two rainy day funds. It has one specifically for public education and it has one that's specifically for the rest of the state. Uh, Unfortunately, that was just not ever going to happen. You know, lawmakers have worked a long time over the last several years to build those education accounts. And there are there is a lot of money in there now. But after what we saw in the pandemic and after the recession, There is just no desire to tap into those reserves, especially when the economy at this point looks shaky and we don't know what the next two years can bring. Well, there's a lot to wrap up here in the next few days. Paul Boger is a reporter and producer with KNPR's State of Nevada. Paul, as always, thank you so much for the updates. Thank you, Noah. Scott King covers energy and science for the Sierra Nevada Ally, and he joins us now. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Noah. You've got a new story up on the Sierra Nevada Allies website this week, sierranevadaally.org. Uh, it's a really interesting story looking at how a project has sort of evolved uh, to help serve the needs of tribes here in our area. So to get us started, can you just tell us what the Native Waters and Arid Lands Project is? Yes. So the Native Waters and Arid Lands Project is funded through the U.S. Department of Agriculture and began um, as a collaborative effort between several tribes throughout the Great Basin and Southwest regions of the U.S., uh, universities and their extension programs, and several state and federal agencies as support developing climate resiliency plans for these tribes. And uh, it was originally tabbed as a five-year project. It began in 2015, and in its final year was 2020, which coincided with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And while the intended purpose of the project was to develop climate resiliency plans, Uh, The channels of communication that were established in the first few years of the project uh, really showed their value when, as with supply chain disruptions and disadvantaged communities being cut off from vital resources, the project evolved to keep those communication channels open so that state agencies and federal agencies were able to provide resources to tribal communities throughout uh, the pandemic. And the project has evolved and continued beyond that original five-year timeline in both capacities, both for continuing to develop climate resiliency plans and uh, providing those vital resources uh, for tribes beyond that scope. And it's my understanding, so the idea of this project was to sort of help tribes become more climate resilient, right? But then the project has sort of evolved since its original uh, start, right? Yes. So this project began with the goal of supporting tribes within these regions to create climate resiliency plans. Uh, A lot of the certain mitigation steps that other stakeholders have in the Colorado River Basin um, requires data, things like weather stations and drought monitors and and things of that nature. And so um, a big 
priority of the Native Waters and Air Lands Project was essentially providing resources and opening up channels of communication to uh, help these tribes develop climate resiliency plans. This project was originally tabbed to go over a five-year timeline. And in its final year was 2020 when, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic kind of hit the country in, in 2020. And then a lot of stakeholders were cut off from vital resources, uh, tribes being one of them. And so because of the channels of communication and relationships that have been established between these agencies and these tribes, uh, they were able to collaborate and evolve the project to get resources that were needed by those tribes during that time. And so since then, it, the project has expanded to become you know, much more than what it was originally tabbed to do, which was to develop those climate resiliency plans. And it continues today in both capacities. And I think that's an important distinction, right, Scott? Because when that project first started, you know, you have to remember where we were. We were in the midst of an epic drought, right? We still are, but people don't, you know, you don't feel it as much in northern Nevada right now with all the snow and flooding and rain that's been going on. But we were in the grips of, you know, if you think back to like 2015, 2016, when this was going on, like this was dry times in northern Nevada. So water was critical to to manage, especially for tribes. And what your piece really goes into that I think is important to note is this is this key decision called the Winters Doctrine, which essentially says that tribes are given senior water rights. So this project in some ways was really to has evolved to help tribes keep that promise of the Winters Doctrine. Can you just give us a little bit of background on that? Sure. So obviously the Colorado River is, and as water levels decline, both in the whole basin and other vital reservoirs like Lake Powell and Lake Mead has obviously been in the national discourse a lot lately. And, you know, one of the unique things that, that we came across in this, as I covered this story was that tribes are the only stakeholders that are, that are required to, are legally required to uh, define their water usage in perpetuity, which means that they have to define how much water they're going to use. And so one of the, I spoke with Stacy M who is an extension education professor at the university of Nevada, Reno and a partner in the project. And she encouraged me to look into what's known as the winter's doctrine, which was established under, uh, the U S Supreme court decision in 1908. So it's over a century old, and in Winters v. U.S., it was established that when Congress set aside land for a purpose such as a reservation, it is implied that water is also going to be used for the purpose of that reservation. And that is included in those senior rights. And that is regardless of whether or not it's spelled out in the land reservation, right? The, the implied water rights are always there for tribes. Correct. When Congress sets aside land, water is to serve the purpose of that land is implied. And it's an imperfect ruling in a lot of ways. It's very complex in nature, as a lot of these uh, discussions are, because there are several other U.S. Supreme Court decisions in subsequent years that have placed further restrictions on that. But um, essentially what the Winters Doctrine does is it ensures that tribes do have senior water rights on their reservations. However, they are tied to a primary purpose, which is agriculture and therefore must be quantified to fit its needs. And that's something that you know, most stakeholders within the Colorado River Basin region um, aren't required to do. And so that is a limiting factor. Although it secures a senior water right, it is a limiting factor in its own way. Yeah, I think it's important to note the distinction here. Like, let's use the example of a city like Phoenix that relies on the Colorado River, is growing significantly. They, one, they don't need to quantify how much water they 
need to use. And then also they can go and buy water up on the open market, buy water rights on the open market, which a city like Phoenix is going to have a lot more resources than, say, a tribe like the Walker River Paiute tribe or any other tribes that are out there, right? Yes, certainly. And so, and even the Winters Doctrine only applies to those that are, are federally recognized tribes. And in order for these tribes to get those rights honored, uh, they have to go through these water settlements, which can take years of litigation and negotiations and of that sort. And so, uh, you know, a lot of these tribes don't have the, to your point, economic capital to turn to the free market. And in the free market, um, obviously, a city like Phoenix or another stakeholder that has that capital for backing um, can certainly, you know, take priority over uh, these tribes in terms of their capacity and what they can offer for that, that more contested water resource. Absolutely. And that's only going to get, I would imagine, more contested as time goes on. Uh, Scott King covers energy and science for the Sierra Nevada Ally. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That'll do it for Ally Radio. A big thank you to Paul Boger and Scott King for joining me this week. You can keep up with the latest news and information from the Sierra Nevada Ally at our website, sierranevadaally.org. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter and get the latest stories sent directly to your email inbox every Friday. You can also quickly and securely make a financial contribution to help keep our reporting going. We will never have a paywall or require a subscription, but that means we rely on individual contributors like you. That's all on sierranevadaally.org. I'm Noah Glick, and until next time, let's be good to each other. <laughs>